Covenant College, it's good to be here. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to step back. I think it's important every once in a while to step back and, and carefully think about who we are and what, what we do and what we're doing here at Covenant College. And so this morning, we're actually going to be considering an important question. Let me begin with, with this question. If someone were to ask you, what do we really need in our day in North America? What is an urgent need now? There are actually all kinds of legitimate answers you could give to that question about what we really need. But what if I told you that one of my top answers to that question is this? And I honestly believe it. The church and the world desperately need what a quality Christian liberal arts education can uniquely provide. The church and the world desperately need what a quality Christian liberal arts education can uniquely provide. And what if I told you that a place like Covenant College could be one of God's great gifts to the church and the world? It seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, like, who are we? We're small. We're up on a mountain. What do we really have to give? What is it? Well, I want us to think about that today. And we could talk about this for hours, but we're going to just have to keep it tight. So we're going to focus on talking about purpose, liberty, and love. Purpose, liberty, and love. Let's start with purpose. Mirzov Volf is a theologian at Yale. He's written a book recently with a guy named Matthew Crosman called For the Life of the World. For the Life of the World, Theology That Makes a Difference. And, and the heart of Volf's thesis is that theology itself is in a bit of a crisis. And that's because theology has stopped asking and, and wrestling with questions that non-theologians care about. There's other problems going on, but the, the result has been that theology has lost touch with real concerns. And part of what's interesting is Wolf argues at Yale, he's arguing that that hurts not just the church, it actually hurts the world. It hurts the world. Because the theology can contribute to conversations about human flourishing in a way that's unique in a way that other disciplines on their own cannot. Now part of what's fascinating is Wolf himself grew up in Eastern Europe. And when he was a teenager in a co under communist dictatorships, he developed a love for theology. And the reason was because he was really wrestling with big questions. Questions about meaning and purpose and life. And that took him to theology. Now, here's the thing. So often when we talk about questions about meaning and purpose, we kind of treat them like they're bonus questions. Like, what really matters is securing food and shelter and safety and self-esteem. And after you get those, then you can talk about meaning and purpose. But Wolf, in his own way, very powerfully argues that these are not just the questions for those with leisure time. 
These are the questions for the poor and the vulnerable. And I would add, they are the questions for the accountant and for the school teacher. But when do we ever take the time to really ex explore these questions with the depth and the breadth that they deserve? And spending four years at college is a unique time where you can dig into some of these deep questions. And what can happen during those four years can shape you for the rest of your life. We are talking about decades and decades of impact. Ask older faculty that have been here for decades and decades. Ask alum who graduated decades ago. Now, part of what constitutes the flourishing life is, is, is a big question, and that's been a question for as long as you can ask questions. Uh, it predates Plato, and it continues unto our day. What, what is the flourishing life? But what's interesting is in our day, Attempts to answer that, particularly in North America, are often done in the absence of God. In the absence of good theology. So the current North American visions that are floating around of the, current, of, of the flourishing life are various forms of radical individualism. Rampant consumerism. And basically, arrogant self-assertion. Statistical studies make it perfectly clear that the path of individualism and consumerism is not making us happier. Dr. Fickert's collected a lot of this kind of data. There's a lot of studies on happiness, and some of you will know about them. And the evidence uh, about the more one consumes and the more individualized we get, we aren't getting happier. But the, part of the problem is we find this distorted vision in the church just like everywhere else. People have incre increasing, increasing numbers of people are feeling more and more isolated, struggling with depression, anxiety, fear. And in the absence of kind of answers and positive ways to think about that, by and large, the main way we're dealing with it in North America is through cultivating distraction. Cultivating distraction. That's how we deal with it. Unfortunately, as you well know, the distractions aren't working any better. Now I want to say something. It may sound offensive, but I, I don't care because I believe it. I'm very confident of this. Many Christians in North America, and this may include you, many Christians in North America have grown tired of plastic Christianity. Many Christians in North America have grown tired of plastic Christianity. Here's what I mean. Too often in North American Christianity, especially in the evangelical world from which I consider myself to come, we've settled for bumper sticker Christianity. It's a spirituality divorced from the real world in which we exist. We provide slogans rather than wisdom. We substitute self-help for Christian formation. And rather than point to the difficult beauty of following a crucified and risen Savior, we instead give empty cliches. And as many of you know, once you emerge from your late teens and then go on into your 20s and 30s, the questions start to pile up. And the hypocrisy 
that one sees can be almost unbearable. And the individualistic spirituality you've taught no longer satisfies. While this has been especially felt by younger evangelicals, it is by no means just them. I hear from people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and I've heard of from people older than that. In other words, this is hitting millennials hard, but this is not a millennial problem. People are tired. People have tried to live lives guided by cliches and bumper stickers. They've tried to live this kind of fractured spirituality where their Sunday faith is just not clearly connected to the rest of the week. Right? Is it, is it really true that the Christian life is fundamentally about accepting Jesus into your heart, occasionally telling people about Jesus, and then just waiting to die and doing whatever you want in the meantime? Is that all it is? Now, by the way, you, you and I should tell people about Jesus. But is that the extent of the Christian life? What does Jesus have to do with your work at Cisco or Coca-Cola or as a veterinarian or as you deal with infrastructure or if you sit in the couch and watch Netflix? You see, bumper stickers and cliches, you got this in high school probably, they'll hide your pain for a season, but not for life. Real life, real work, real relationships, real joy, and real pain. All of these require the deep truth of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Mary, and Paul. But, and this is key, wisdom also for real life requires a growing understanding of the complexity of the world in which you and I actually live. In other words, you can't just study the Bible. To grow in our understanding of creation and the complications brought about by the fall, it calls us to discover the beauty of being called a child of God, but also the beauty of being called to meaningful work in this world. It's a, a covenant, we call it the big C and the little C. That may sound cheesy, it's so important that we don't choose between those. And it's something that you and I start to take for granted once you've been here for a while. It's unique, more unique than you know. The research of Robert Bellow, a very significant sociologist, died not too long ago, but research of he and his colleagues, among others, uh, really started to explore the idea of work. And they argue that, there are th that people, when they work, it's, it's in one of three ways how they view their work. The first is it's, it's job, career, or calling. People approach their work as a job, and what that means is you, you, you go and you get a job in order to make money to do the things that are important, like your leisure and your hobby, which is, by the way, how most people view why you go to college. You go to college so you can get the best job possible, which means make the most money so you can do the things that you think are the most important that have nothing to do with your job. The second category is career. Career. And, 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 and in terms of career, what they mean by that is your work is viewed in order, you labor in order to advance in promotion or in income. You're kind of energized by the race and the hopes for promotion. 
But, but in moments of sobriety, you, you ask yourself, honestly, does any of this really matter? Does it really matter at all? But then the third category is different. Those who engage in this work, it's called a calling or a vocation. And they find it, and here's the language of the, the scholars, they find it, quote, intrinsically fulfilling. You're not doing it to achieve anything else. Intrinsically fulfilling. Now, part of what's interesting is, I don't know the background of all the scholars engaged in the research, but it's very fair to say a lot of them are not Christians. And yet, notice whether or not you realize it, the language of calling and vocation is very much Christian theological language. They can sense something here. And we think it's good, this idea of vocation. But here's the challenge. If there is no transcendent reality, if there's no transcendent reality, then how do you secure this? If there's no God who's present and who's blessing, then the idea of work becoming intrinsically satisfying loses its stability. It's going in the right direction, but it still asks just the obvious question. Secular language calls it calling. Who's calling? Is it just my internal calling? Because then at some point it still will occur to you, so what if that's what I think? Is that all? I was on the phone just this last week with a Christian. He's about 50. He has three children. He attends church. He makes a very good salary. Very good. He's a serious Christian who loves God and wants to serve him. And he is so frustrated because, to use his language, he feels like he wastes most of his life. Because he spends so much of his time dealing with real estate contracts. Right? He, he, he deals with office politics. That kind of thing. And he's wondering, is that all? Does any of it actually matter besides the occasional time he might get to tell someone at work about Jesus? Does any of it actually matter? College students ask the same question. You ask these questions because you've seen believers and even communities of faith who we have actually belittled secular work. And yet you've also seen how rarely people, Christians you know, have had the tools to fight the impulses of individualism, consumerism, and arrogance. I think it's legitimate to say young people want more, but not more money. More meaning, more purpose. You need to discover the joy of vocation, a joy, a, a vision that integrates a good, rich theology with the insight of specialists in all the disciplines. So I was trying to gather statistics on this. It looks like the average person right now, and my guess is it's just going to go up, the average person in North America has about 12 different jobs during their life. What's interesting is a Christian liberal arts education can prepare you not simply for a job, not even just for a career, that can easily change and will change in our times. 
but prepare you for hearing God's own call as a path of life. A vocation that's flexible enough to evolve with the times and keep its meaning and purpose in God's world. But honestly, to get that nuanced and shaped and formed, it takes a community of Christian faculty, staff, administration, trustees, and students who all stand under the authority of Scripture and in awe of God's world, who are sober about the realities of sin and yet hopeful about God's continued work in both the mundane and the miraculous. I think it's part of why we need a quality Christian liberal arts education. We can uniquely prepare people to ask the big questions and understand their purpose in this world, the world they're entering into. Let's talk about liberty. Liberty. Too often North American evangelicals have opted for simplistic and naive answers to the hard questions in life. Whether we're dealing, and you know this, whether we're dealing with poverty, right, or science, or economics, or psychology, we are notorious in the evangelical world for substituting carelessly chosen proof texts for the hard work of soaking in the scriptures and in the complications of this world. And the result is that we give people cheap answers that might feel good at first, until they start to push back. Until the questions are very difficult. Until our own sin or our bias or our ignorance is exposed. And then, sadly, and you know this well, too often in the evangelical world, our response out of our insecurity has been simply to yell louder and sound no different than the world. We are all, or at least I hope you are, alarmed by the growing tribalism and fragmentation in North America. Now, people don't just have different political views. No, as one scholar describes it, now, whatever side is the other one than you, they are, quote, pure evil. That's how it works. And MSNBC News and Fox News serve as powerful symbols of the flames of polarization. Just as an aside, if, if you, I know, as a bunch of Presbyterians, so you may not believe in Lent, so if not, just do it for 40 days. Give up cable news for 40 days and see how that is shaping and forming us. You see, we are tempted to substitute stereotypes for real people. We cling to simplistic answers, but we need liberty to learn. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University. And in 2012, he published a book called The Righteous Mind. Why good people are divided by politics and religion. We could talk for hours about the work. It's fascinating. But Haidt shows that we imagine ourselves, this is how we all kind of imagine, we imagine ourselves just dispassionately led by reason. That's, that's how we're led. When in fact, all the evidence points to Really, more often, we are led by intuition and passion. It sounds similar to comments Augustine's made, by the way. We know what we want to think. We know the conclusion we want to get to. So we sift through the arguments, not looking for what's true or best, but for what will align with our 
preconceived opinion. Now, whether or not he knows it, because he's not a Christian, hate actually points to a biblical warning of self-righteousness. We're so consumed with the problems we see in others that we fail to see our own shortcomings. But this is key. Our own shortcomings, not simply morally, but intellectually. Hate provides warnings and encouragements both for conservatives and liberals. And his findings and frustrations with contemporary university education caused him to write the new bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. We should probably all read this book. I'm halfway through. It's stunning. He's worried that we don't know how to debate how to wrestle with difficult ideas, how to both argue and learn, including learning from those who say things we find objectionable. Again, let me be clear, this is not simply a liberal problem. Conservative colleges have panicked that a speaker might challenge the way their students think. It's not just on the left. Now, I see a different version of this when Christian students often go off to secular colleges. Here's what happens, and maybe you have some friends in this situation. We send students off to college and we say to them, listen, you're going to this university, the professors there are probably not Christian, in fact, they're probably anti-Christian. So here's what happens. You enter into the classroom as a 19-year-old, whether it's political science or natural science a natural science or philosophy and everything the professor says you think must be wrong and how could you blame him because how much training has a 19 year old had in the discipline i don't mean to be mean but just so you know by definition that what I just described is antithetical to actual education. That's a way to go to some great football games. That's not education. Sorry. On the other hand, Christian students who've been sent off to the school have been told the same thing, and then they get into the classroom and the professor's compelling and interesting and kind and makes good arguments and then the christian says well i guess i find this moving i have to abandon the faith because we've set them up to believe you have to choose between intellectual integrity and christian orthodoxy god forbid thank you Praise God, at a Christian liberal arts education, at a a Christian liberal arts college, hard questions are asked and wrestled with, and you know this because you're here now, and not always answered. Not always answered, not always solved. The complexities are engaged. Even as the faith that's been handed through the ages is brought to bear on the topic at hand. We don't seek simplistic answers but slow-growing wisdom. 
and the formation of godly instincts. I believe probably the most important things that, thing that Covenant College faculty do is stand in front of you and believe. I think that's the most important. Not in because you have thoughtful professors who don't hide from the hard questions, who look at real data, and yet they stand there and believe. So important. Liberated in Christ, we're not afraid since all truth is God's truth. We also believe in the creator-creature distinction, which means you're not God. I tell you, finitude is not sin. Our confession of faith means, by definition, we are dependent upon others. We need to learn from others and not just Christians. Let's talk about love. Love is contagious. Delight is contagious. Go to any college or university, you're going to have professors who, by and large, are teaching something because they love it. And it's understandable, in fact, it's good and right, that they then will try and pass on that love to students. That's a good thing. But even a good thing can go sideways. Because our world seeks to base love and delight ultimately in the creation rather than the creator. And we're asking too much of the creation itself. Honestly, I think one of the most important needs in the West in general, in North America in particular, is we need to help people rediscover the enchantment of this world. And I think that has everything to do with education and love. In a world devoid of transcendence, devoid of God's presence, wisdom, and power, we inevitably try to find in the creation what can ultimately only be found in God. This is part of where in North America we, we, we guide all of our affections and desires and actions towards simply temporal realities. It should not surprise us that North American ethics get reduced to whatever I want, whatever I believe must be good and right. And that is in the church as well. But we've got to be careful here as Christians because we can react to this with a form of fundamentalism where all of a sudden we bow to God for the spiritual parts of our life, but fail to connect the rest of life with King Jesus. And part of this grows out of a misunderstanding of the very love of God. Sometimes newly married couples, you know, will say, this doesn't tend to be people who've been married for decades, but a newly married couple, someone will say, I'm just afraid I love my spouse too much. You think about that. Uh, A parent will say, I'm afraid I love my child too much. An artist might say, I'm afraid I love my craft too much. An entrepreneur, she might say, I'm afraid I love my work too much. I want to put this as clearly as I can. I simply don't think it's true. You cannot love your spouse too much. You cannot love your child too much. You can't love your entrepreneurial work too much can't love your craft too much why because god is not exalted by lessening your loves the christian path is not loving less it's loving more and rightly it's very different otherwise the path of christianity is about deadening your affections 
Our goal is not to love less, but more. The problem is we've misunderstood love. We're demanding of these people or things what they simply cannot give. Yes, your spouse, your child, and your work will never be Messiah. And when you make it so, you hurt it or them and yourself. That's idolatry. When we confuse the creation with the creator and when we treat good gifts from God as if they are God himself. Creation is meant to be enjoyed. You believe that? Creation is meant to be enjoyed, just not worshipped. So what's the answer? Learn to love God's creation as just that. God's creation. Delight to call God's gifts just that. Gifts from God. Education at a Christian liberal arts college can promote loving God and his world. And we seek to pass on these loves just rightly ordered. Christian education is not merely, oh man, this so happens. We think Christian education is about giving the Christian answer. That's not what we do here at Covenant. It's not about the, quote, Christian answer to all the cheap questions. No, a place like Covenant is important because it offers four years of sustained, careful, embodied reflection and life together under the Lordship of Christ. Is it expensive? Yes. <laughs> Honestly, when are some of you going to go make billions? I'm not even for millions. I want bi- Make it free. It's expensive. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it long? Is it worth it? Can it have decades and decades of impact? Shaped by the sacred scriptures, we engage this world from a posture of humility, confidence, and grace. We know who God is. We know who we are in Christ. And we're eager to see pockets of shalom break out in our broken world. Let me conclude. Christians in North America desperately need deep learning. Not simply in theology, but in the wonder of God's enchanted world. We actually ask too much of local pastors to be experts on everything. They're called to proclaim Christ and Him crucified and risen. They bring us to the bread and wine. The value and importance, they remind us of the value and importance of life together. Praise God. But what a gift to the church and to the world. When a place like Covenant College graduates students who are not simply interested in a job or even a career, but who have been equipped to see their work as a calling. Whether you enter the laboratory, the classroom, the courtroom, whether you rear children or serve as accountants, you go into your work not as a distraction from your faith, but as a vital expression of it. You see, a Christian liberal arts education can reconnect what everyone is tempted to pull apart. Together, we can better know what it means to live as God's people in God's world in our day 
and time. Secure in God's love, we're liberated to learn, addressing hard questions of purpose and meaning, questions about the complexities of the world, questions that are relevant not simply when you're 18 or 48 or 68, when you're 88. Amen. Let me pray. Our God, who are we? The reality is Christian liberal arts education does not happen a lot around the world and even in this country where it has been a great gift. Even Christians wonder, do we really need to be nuanced? Do we really need more than simply to tell people how to get to heaven? Does this world matter? Help us not to belittle what you love. Help us live in your world, in your grace, confident, humble, and with purpose. We pray in the name of our risen King. Amen.